there everybody is welcome welcome your backup plan tribe to another awesome awesome podcast if you are new here welcome to our show if you are an existing subscriber thank you for returning my name is tina again talking taboo with tina is brought to you by your backup plan app we focus on real raw conversations with our listeners about their journey from a life-changing event in their life i am an emergency preparedness coach a best-selling author of In the Blink of an Eye. Yes, In the Blink of an Eye. Just like that, things can happen just like that. And I know our guest is going to be telling us in the blink of an eye how quickly things can change. I am a financial expert and app developer of your backup plan app, and I'm located here in beautiful Vancouver, BC, Canada. So welcome to our channel. I'm super happy to have you here with us today. Your backup plan app. What is that exactly? What the heck is that your backup plan? Um, your backup plan app puts your life all into one place in case of any unpredictable circumstance while taking that painful aftermath out of a tragedy. Yes. What does that mean? Well, one thing for sure is we're going to we can count on is that we are all on this earth we've come onto the earth and we are going to die at some point um it sounds awful we're going to be sick we're going to be disabled we're going to lose everything we are going to die wow that's quite the statement isn't it but it does something happens at some point in your life where things change and from a loss of a tragedy or a disaster, uh, we have we have to be, be prepared for the unexpected because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Um, and we are not Superman in this world. It won't happen to me, is in quotes. Yeah, because we think we're Superman in this world. But as our friend Mike Tyson has always said in his quote, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. And we're preparing to launch our new Emerging Blueprint program that's going together with your backup plan app. Um, I have got to get this darn thing completed so that you guys can have access to it. It's a library of videos, a library of interviews with attorneys, lawyers, accountants, from all over the world. I'm so excited to bring this to you guys, to give you worksheets, to have family conversations. How do I start? That was the one of the biggest things that I get asked is how do I start this conversation with our family? And I make a workshop out of it. We have a evening with wine and coffee, and we talk about uh, the worksheets and how easy it can be just to complete it. And you'll never look back. Um, I'd like to welcome our beautiful subscribers and our listeners to our show. United States and Canada is the top listeners of our show. And you'll never believe, but Germany is also. Ireland and Sweden also. Um, meine deutsche Freunde in unserem Podcast willkommen. Wenn Sie Kommentar haben, können Sie gern Fragen stellen. Also danke für deine Freundschaft. Danke fürs Hören, meine deutsche Freunde.
So thank you very much. Let's get this party started with our wonderful guest, Overcome Fear with the Cards You've Been Dealt is the title of our show today, brought to you from beautiful New Jersey. Alan Placer is coming here to us as a retired firefighter, a retired EMT. He's an entrepreneur of two businesses. Let's bring him on our show. Hey, Alan. Hey, how are you, Tina? Thanks for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. I'm so excited to have you on just to hear your New Jersey accent, possibly as well. <laughs> Oi. Yes, I'll fist bump for you. How about that? <laughs> okay, that sounds good. I have, I, I guess we say we have accents, but I don't hear any accent. We're boring in Vancouver. Yeah, we don't, we don't have much of anything. I don't think we do in Jersey either. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It just brings back Laverne and Shirley kind of yes. stories in my head. I love that accent. So, you know, you have, you're now an entrepreneur of two big businesses as well. And I love your story, Alan. And I'm excited for you to talk about your journey through being a firefighter and EMT, what that's given you and put in your head to bring you to where you are today. Um, 9-11 was, uh, Ground Zero was an absolute eye-opener, I'm sure, for you as well. But where did it all start for you, Alan? Where did this all begin? Um, my life started when I was nine years old. <laughs> Before that, everything was a normal life. Uh, but then um, my parents had a very angry, uh, violent divorce uh, that went on for long after the, the court was done. Uh, long after we were all 18. Um, so um, in my, I have uh, two older siblings and when my parents got divorced, uh, it was a free for all. Everybody kind of had to fend for themselves. Um, my mom left us. Uh, my dad was mentally ill and not really able to take care of us. And uh, my sister immediately went to live with my mom. My brother left a year later and I was kind of on my own. Uh, not, not your typical family divorce at all. Uh, and we had moved away down to Florida. Uh, so I was really isolated from any kind of family with just me and my dad. Uh, and I remember at 10 years old, riding my bike, being on my own. I mean, I had to decide every day to get up, go to school, have breakfast, do homework, what I was going to wear. My dad was just I, I should never have been left with him. He was physically not capable of raising me. But I remember riding my bike at around 10 years old, trying to figure out why I was on earth. What am I doing? You know, there was kind of no, no purpose for me. And I decided at that time that I wanted to be a good man. I said, if I'm going to be here, I, that's what I should do. That that's, and, and then came the exploration of what does it mean to be a good person? I was very introverted. I was shy. I got picked on a lot in school. And I didn't know. I'm like, I'm not a bad person. Why do I get picked on? Uh, and that happens uh, to so many people. It does. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I wasn't a bully. Uh, I was quite the opposite. I was very bullied. So when I turned 17, I decided uh, I was going to join a fire department because that was going to make me more of a man not really fully understanding the definition of what a man was. I just knew I wasn't what everybody I looked at was. Uh, and so I started volunteering, you know, as fire. And then that 
that led me into paid EMS over time. Uh, actually, within a year, I realized EMS was a little more my path. Uh, I really enjoyed the life saving. Again, if you're going to be a good person, I realized helping other people. Uh, that that was what it was evolving into is being a good person means helping other people. Uh, and I got very heavily into EMS and, uh, and still did fire, but mostly it was about, about the life saving. And, uh, during my years in it, I became uh, a specialist with mass casualties and, uh, uh, it was just more, my thing. the bigger the disaster was, the more the opportunity was to serve. And as it turned out, the more people would look to me to be in command, uh, of these incidents, uh, and, and so that just, it's the way it evolved for me. It must've been good to like, you felt good about organizing at the, on the spur of the moment type of thing. Yeah. I was very good at thinking on my feet with it. What I didn't realize at the time was I was doing it all to build my ego while I was serving people. I was doing it to try to get praise because I never got that as a child. Uh, and ultimately that's no way you can complete your life, but I think pretty much everybody I knew in the firehouses, that's how you, you live and survive is generally on ego at those ages. Yeah. Um, you, until you get a little older and wiser in you. Uh, and then um, in 20, uh, yeah, 2001, I was actually living in North Carolina uh, with my wife. Uh, at the time, we had a one and a half year old. And uh, I was on the Red Cross disaster action team. I was on the local first aid down there uh, and worked with medical dispatch down there. Uh, I'd gone mostly out of the ambulances and more uh, into the, the office management. I kind of grew stale in my life with it. And then 9-11 uh, happened. And uh, because my roots were on the Jersey Shore and you know right across from Manhattan, uh, I knew, you know, when the first plane hit that this would be something that would be unprecedented and, you know, my kind of skills would be needed. And so my bags were packing and uh, I think it was when the first building fell, I was in the car and, and heading up might even been be, I think it was after the second plane hit. I was in the How car. How far did you have to go then? North Which, Carolina to New York. So City. is that like six hours or so or? Uh, I think I did it in eight, eight or 10. I went okay. fast, over 90 miles an hour. I actually ruined my car on the trip. Uh, I got, when I was on my way up, I got a call from my Red Cross leader saying, hey, you want to go up to uh, New York and, and help out up there? And I'm like, I'm already on the way. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, I went up. I never saw the towers fall. I saw replays later on. Uh, and, uh, I was actually put in, uh, in charge of a ferry, uh, to, that was going to cross over to Manhattan. Uh, they asked me to, uh, take a lead to make sure there was three surgeons and, uh, crew of firefighters. We actually picked up a SWAT team. Uh, I think I was Staten Island or somewhere. I don't know the islands around there that we stopped and picked up some guys and then, uh, climbed over a seawall cause we couldn't dock the boat anywhere. Uh, so we climbed over a seawall into lower Manhattan and just kind of went on our way to try to find uh, incident command, uh, which at the time hadn't really been fully established, reestablished yet. Uh, I found a fire chief 
uh, and it's like, hey, I got these three surgeons with me. The other guys, I sent them. I knew where the firefighters needed to go in general. Uh, so he, the chief just looked at me like he was numb. He didn't have much. You know, this is the highest person in charge. And he's like, well, send him to one of the hospitals. And one of the, the surgeons was from the city. So he's like, all right, come with me to this hospital. And they went that way. And I was, uh, I just was standing next to the pile. Like, what the hell do I do now? And I got joined, joined up with other teams and started, uh, doing work, trying to, trying to find survivors, uh, and spent the next 24 hours there uh, doing what I could to try to find uh, people alive. I bet you met a lot of people as well. Um, I met one person. At one point, I finally saw a a Red Cross truck, uh, and it dawned on me that nobody knew I was there. God forbid anything that happened. The only My wife knew uh, I'd gotten a call to her before I crossed into the city, but there was really no cell service. So I said, let me go over to this truck and check in. And I met another gentleman there. He was really in the food services for the Red Cross. Um, he was the only one I met that that I still have his name of. Uh, I met a lot of people that were like asking me if I'd seen their loved ones. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. There, there were was people just walking around randomly then? Not around Ground Zero. They had, you know, there were barricades up. Um, but even at the barricades, it wasn't like, you know, you would think there'd be people stacked deep, uh, you know, looking on, but no, at that point, I think there was still a lot of fear of being in downtown. You know, when I was on the pile, we were afraid many times about, uh, anytime an airplane flew over, uh, you know, you would want to run off the pile. We didn't know that everything had been grounded, uh, and that we were just hearing military planes. Uh, but a couple of times we had to get off because either other buildings were coming down or somebody thought another building was going to come down. Uh, so there was, there was a lot going on. Plus you're on top of a pile that even if you're at ground level, you know, there's seven stories below you that could collapse at any time. So you, it's just so unstable, uh, to be on there, but you have no other choice. That's amazing. When you think seven stories, I mean, seven stories up is, is a lot. So, seven stories down is incredible yeah i think yeah that's standard in the cities you know you know because where could people be i mean they could be anywhere right the reality was that the only survivors came out within the first few hours so you know i didn't know it at the time nobody did nobody would fathom that you know we thought thousands of people there has to be more survivors it's just not fathomable that there wouldn't Mm -hmm. be um but the other reality was you can't dig in concrete rebar. You know, you can't, it's, it's not like dirt where you just pick up and move piles or, you know, yeah. branch. It's, it's all connected with steel bars that need heavy equipment. Uh, but you did what you could. You picked up what you could because you just didn't know if the, the next grab was going to be, you know, a whole person or a live person. Yeah. How many people were there that died in that? Do you remember? Uh, 30. 200 no 2300 i lose the number the overall number uh i i I try not to dwell on the numbers because you get guilt uh do you think they were mostly in the stairways or were they in the floors not being able to get out i'm not sure where they i I would imagine you'd have a combination of people in the stairwell some of the survivors that did come out were in the stairwell because stairwells are stronger structures 
Uh, and then there were people that were, you know, hiding under their desks because uh, the fire systems were telling some people, you know, some areas to stay where you were. Uh, so I think they were probably everywhere. I mean, that many people, they had to be everywhere. Well, even in, I mean, that's a, a real war zone that you stepped yourself into. You must have felt like you were in another country. It, it was. It was very surreal the second we climbed over the wall. First of all, the fact that you're climbing over a wall to get into Manhattan. Uh, and then, uh, you know, there's no power to lower Manhattan. There's smoke, you know, not just a haze, but there's, you know, at that point still fires going and, uh, and again, no command system. I've never been on a scene where the command system was gone. And, uh, and it was like the only thing I could ever compare it to were the, the soldiers that went to, you know, Afghanistan, uh, after that, that the things they saw in the hand to hand combat was so surreal and unrealistic to them. It's just, it was a different world. And then, and then when you leave, like to leave, I went to, you know, Midtown to uh, catch a train. And, and as soon as you left, like the lights are on, Times Square is lit up and, uh, you know, people are just look like they were wondering about their business. I'm sure they weren't, but, you know, taxi cabs driving around and stuff. I'm like, did you not just see what happened blocks away there? (laughs) It was very surreal. Wow. That's so strange. Um, so we were really not prepared. Well, I don't think on that level you could be prepared um, because just so much of the infrastructure of the fire and EMS system disappeared. You didn't ever, you had backups for backups for backups and all of them got knocked out. Just so many levels of command uh, mm-hmm. that didn't make it out of the buildings. So Did we lose firefighters and and? Yes. 58, I believe it is. Uh, oh, yeah. That was, I mean, you go in. I would have been one of them. If I had worked in New Jersey still, lived in New Jersey, uh, the person who did the job that I was aspiring for did not make it out. So, oh. Yeah. And, and I'm I, sorry to hear that. What you do, you know, it's part yeah. of the job. And so all those people, I mean, it was a huge office building, those two, right? Mm-hmm. Financial companies. Yes. Um, I guess there was food, restaurants, daycare. I don't know what else was in there. Um, no, it was, it was, they're a little city. So everything, barber shops and whatever you need is, is available in there. It's mostly adults. I didn't really hear much about kids uh, ever. You know, I know in uh, Oklahoma City, you know, they had a daycare in there. Yeah, but the yeah. city was generally just adults in, in, at the World Trade Center. Do any feelings come from doing this work from other accidents or things that tragedies that occur, like, you know, the shooter in, in Las Vegas, uh, for example, um, anything like that, like the condo collapse in Florida? The condo collapse in Florida was a big one because uh, it, it, as far as EMS and fire goes, forget about whether it's where at war an enemy did it. We don't care what caused the building to collapse. Building collapses are very difficult to deal with because like I was saying before, you're, you're helpless. You, you need machinery. Uh, it's, it goes well beyond what we can do. So the guys that spent you know, all the time down in, in Florida were going through the same PTSD issues uh, that we went through on 9-11. Um, you know, there's a small extra factor when you know that there were 300 plus firefighters, you know, 
yeah in it but it does you're just digging for people you know in the end yeah uh, yeah certain things are triggers uh today for me still that that bring you back there and uh you know mostly now i just sympathize for the the, the firefighters that are down there dealing with it and hoping they don't have to have they don't come out of it with the ptsd that that i had to deal with uh, because we have learned so much more about it now um i'd have to think from what you're saying in your story that you know you're there to find people alive but even when you find people that are dead it 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 must be somehow kind of good in a way because you're helping the family because if you're not finding anybody that must be horrible i i That's didn't why. i didn't take it that way um it would have been nicer had i done that but my job was to save lives yeah yeah so uh every time uh you know i i it I, that was what i left there broken was that i exhausted myself physically and mentally and had i not been there it wouldn't have made a difference it wouldn't have saved a single person i struggled with that for a decade until i went back the first time for the, the 10th anniversary uh it it was a horrible thing to live with for me yes i can i can imagine that um but when you think when you lose someone and the person doesn't get found that must be just horrific i i watched being from jersey i mean you knew everybody knew five ten people that either they lost or lost a loved one uh and many of them they didn't get that closure of having uh a person a whole person uh you know sometimes yeah. they, they would get a ring maybe you know uh so it was a lot harder for them that didn't didn't have that opportunity yes i could see that yeah. um but all these people went to work that day just like every other day yeah, I, I, I've never uh, had a patient that died on me that thought they were going to die that day. Nobody ever thinks that's going to happen to them, and no. uh, nobody knows how they're going to go. You know, they, they, you can, you can wish it, dream it, but nobody knows. Nobody knows if it's going to be in your sleep, awake, quick, painful, whatever Long. it's going to be. <laughs> if you knew, you probably would avoid that situation. Yeah, exactly. Well, there was a few people that escaped that 9-11 just by not going into work for whatever reason that day, which must be amazing all in itself. And can you imagine what they feel like? You know, there'd be a lot of guilt for them as well. I imagine there there could be. Um, you know, they may have chose to skip work and got hit by a bus instead, though, too. I, yeah. I, it's just it's too random in the world. You can't plan your life for for those kinds of occurrences you no. know you plan your life for what you can affect your health and things like that yeah unless you have your backup plan yeah and then you're <laughs> organized at least yeah. so for whatever the reason might be that might come you might come across that was an an, uh, an absolute amazing history part of our story that will never change um and it will never change for you when did you leave that business after 9 11 when did you 
that was my last day. Uh, I tried once to get on an ambulance, the sirens, uh, I, I couldn't, I, I had like nervous attacks, so, you know, it was too short. Maybe had I gone back five years later and tried, um, but I, I, that was the last time I did any emergency services. Uh, it, it, it had was, that much of an impact on you. It did. I didn't, I didn't recognize it at the time. Um, there were immediate problems I had. Uh, you know, I went back to North Carolina and we live right outside of Raleigh. Um, and, uh, I realized I couldn't go into any of the buildings downtown. Uh, I had, and I've never had any fears of anything, you know, like, uh, you know, paralyzing fears or anything. Um, but I realized that, uh, low flying airplanes were an immediate trigger. Uh, unfortunately we didn't have much around there, but when I moved back to Jersey, there's always low flying planes and like I would tremor and I would have to look at everyone and watch it the entire way to make sure is that on a regular flying path and things like that. It, it was very difficult. And I know a lot of people around the Jersey shore area, uh, had that issue too. Um, buildings were very tough for me, uh, going, going up more than four or five stories. Uh, I, I would have paralyzing fear from that, but for the most part that didn't affect my daily life because that wasn't mm -hmm. what I had to do. So I didn't realize, uh, how much PTSD issues I had, uh, how much I had buried down in me, uh, until I really started to face it 10 years later. If anything, I came away from, uh, 9-11 with a renewed, uh, wanting to live every life every day of life like it was my last and i always kind of lived that way because you know i'd seen so many people pass away but this really you know i i really for the first time i had been in a lot of near-death situations but i never really felt so blessed to make it home and didn't want to miss the opportunity there was a reason that i was chosen to make it home right and it's unfortunate that we have to have these experiences to make us realize how important every day is. I always say everybody should have a near death experience every 10 years. I think it helps reset you. <laughs> Push the reset button. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's a scary thought in itself. Um, it would be very similar to like a war zone, I guess, to have those planes overhead, you know? Um, I think so. Um, you know, I think maybe for our soldiers, the planes have always been on our side, you know, ever since, I guess, after World War II. So they may not have the fear of the planes. They actually see the planes as the others, the other way around. Um, but yeah, I mean, you always hear about soldiers, you hear a gunshot and, you know, it brings back flashbacks. So. Yeah. 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 It's a scary, scary world. Um, so where did that bring you that you retired from that and you awoke from this fear that uh, you had been living in. I, I awoke from, like I was saying before, a staleness um, because I had achieved what I thought was everything I had wanted in life at that point. I, I had, uh, you know, a wife, a you know, year and a half old son. We had a new home we had just had built and, you know, a very comfortable career. Uh, but I wanted more after that. Um, and it was funny because maybe six months before I, my boss sent me to a Dale Carnegie class where it was a speaking class and we had to do a speech on our goals moving forward. And the day before the speech, I remember 
saying to him, I, I have everything I want. I don't have any big goals, maybe a boat, but I don't really have anything that I want. And the speaker looked at me and he said, Alan, if you don't change, you're going to grow stale. And I repeated myself to him. I said, you don't, I don't think you get it. I don't want to change. I like this. And unfortunately, comfortable. I was comfortable. And unfortunately for me, it didn't settle in. I was too young and still running on ego at that time, uh, what he meant. Um, but within two years after 9-11, the job was gone. The relationship had fallen apart. We were getting divorced. Everything was gone. The house was gone uh, because I didn't change. And because the world around you changes, whether you want to change or not, doesn't matter. You know, you could be in a job and say, I'm, I'm happy in this, this level. Well, somebody else is going to pass you by if you don't change, if you don't take the promotion and the job may change or the job may disappear. Uh, so yeah, I grew stale. And so I woke up after nine 11 and I wanted more from my life. Um, my ex-wife was very comfortable with the way we were living. So it did not, we no longer melded well together. Uh, and we wound up separating and, uh, we had moved back to Jersey knowing that the relationship was going South. So we would be near our families and have help if we needed, uh, which turned out to be a, a blessing there. Um, but shortly after we separated, I wound up with, uh, primary custody of my son, uh, and, I was working in my parents' retail store, making like $15 an hour. And in New Jersey, that's nothing, especially by the no. Jersey Shore. I had a one-bedroom studio apartment was all I could afford that my son and I shared. Uh, so it, it was a, a tough life, but I, was, I, was, I wanted more out of life. That's all I knew and cared about. And while I lo had lost all my physical stuff, my drive for more was there. And now I also had the need to take care of my son. So I started a little side hustle uh, that I would do in the mornings and evenings, an e-commerce business that it just kept growing I, because I kept investing into it. And, uh, and I kept working it and raising my son and being intentional about both, about how I raised my son, who had also had high-functioning autism to add to everything else, uh, and, and how I took care of my side hustle, never knowing that it would turn into a multi-million dollar corporation that it is today. I didn't even know the market was there for it, much less my ability to do something like that. Um, or keep it going that long. And keep it going. It's yeah. uh, 13, 14 years now uh, and, and, uh, and still growing every year. But it, it was really you know, we're talking about fear here. Uh, I, I had recognized, you know, in EMS and fire, when you work with fear, uh, you don't really think about it. But when you're afraid of something, you step back and analyze it. And you think about the risk versus reward. Uh, but generally, in EMS and fire, the, you're going to take the risk. Uh, and usually, the bigger the risk, the bigger the reward. You just don't think about it. It becomes second nature. And I guess in combination with that and never having parents growing up that taught me fear. And when I say taught fear, you know, fear is a natural instinct. But what you do with fear is not. That's your choice. And, you know, usually like if 
you step near the edge of a cliff, your parent grabs you and pulls you away. So your reaction to fear, for most things, a parent is going to teach a child is something they're afraid of. They pull them away into safety. I never really had that. I'm not sure why I'm not dead. I probably should be. <laughs> but because I survived all of that, fear never stopped me. And as it got more into the business world, what I learned was fear is just a warning. And I compare it nowadays to a falling rock sign that you see on the side of the road when you're driving. That's what your fear is. Nobody pulls their car over and stops because they're, they're afraid of the falling rocks. But what you do do is you, you look up, you're like, do I see anything falling? Are there big boulders in the roads? You, you change your plan a little, you take caution and you proceed forward. And that's what I learned to do with fear. Anytime you have that, what you realize now all of a sudden is that fear is a power. Because it gives you a warning for something that's going to come up. It's a natural occurrence. You're never afraid of something twice. Once you've driven past that fallen rock sign, you're okay to drive past it again. So when you learn to use that fear as a power, what you then wind up doing is actually looking for that fear. Because in the business world, fear is what stops the competition. You know, when it came, restaurants are the key thing, the key example. How many restaurants just shut their doors and we're done. And the ones that said, I'm going to take on this fear, this problem, this challenge, I'm going to figure out home delivery and how to make this work. And they're the ones that are thriving today. So fear in in every aspect of your life in relationships, you know, you have a problem going on with your spouse and you're afraid to deal with it. Well, what does it do? It just festers and grows. But if you see that, Hey, we have a problem in our relationship if we can work it out together, then our relationship will be stronger. Then you'll be more likely to take it on and, and have a stronger relationship on the other side. You know, Absolutely. Because uh, you're looking at the positive side as well. Yeah. You know, the, the negative side, the, the very first reaction to fear is always the worst case scenario. Well, what if this happens? Mm-hmm. The great thing about that is you now know what's the worst thing that can happen. But that's the worst thing. You never play the game for the worst thing that can happen to you. No. So the odds are you could probably come up with what could be the best thing. You know, I'll become a millionaire, whatever. The odds are it's going to fall somewhere in between. So proceed with that then. You know, proceed with that knowledge. Yeah, it's funny how fear has taught us from a young age all along what to be fearful of but you know you're not on a track where you're competing in a uh, 100 meter run or 100 yard run or whatever it might be and you're down getting ready and they you know because you're flashbacking everything as soon as you get your stance ready to go for the for the gun that goes off or if you're in a car whatever it might be the race um you're not thinking well, I'm going to be last. <laughs> well, you right. shouldn't be running if you are. <laughs> You're thinking of making it to the finish line first. Yeah. You know, I That's see it right. every day. I have a 105-pound Bernese Mountain Dog. Biggest, fluffiest, friendliest dog that there is. And I take him for walks every day. And there's some people, when they see him, they're afraid of him. The reaction is fear. And some people aren't afraid. It's the same event. It's you know, the same dog, the same look, 
but some people are choosing fear and choosing how to react to that fear. You can be afraid of the dog and say, you know what, I'm going to overcome it. I want to go pet him and, and be nice to him. Yeah. So you have that choice. You just have to consciously think of it and you have to train yourself to do it by starting with the little fears like, hey, can I pet your dog? And, and then recognize when you've won over that fear, mentally, consciously say to yourself, hey, I conquered that fear. And that'll make you less afraid to take on the next bigger fear that comes along. Right. Because they never stop, do they? No, they, that's they, life. They that's, part of, that's the glory of life is that it has surprises. Can you imagine how boring would life would be if it didn't? Yeah. yeah. It's how we deal with it. Mm-hmm. It's our, every emotion that we feel, we, we get to choose what to do with that emotion. And it takes a lot of training. Uh, but it's wonderful when you're in control of that. What do you think you've grown from the fear of 9-11? What do you think you've been able to really look at and deal with inside? Uh, problems that come along. It's really, I, I hit some some roadblocks with my business several times that it, it most people would have shut it down. Um, I lost when I had started my company inside of my family's business. And I recognized that that business was going to be shutting down. And that would mean my business was shut down because not only was I using their space, I was using their distributors to get product. There was a lot of interrelation. Um, so my, my uh, not being afraid to take on challenges meant I figured out on my own that I needed to move out. I needed to find distribution for products and things like that. And then uh, last year, uh, the distributor that was providing over 60% of my product shut down on me. They just, they stopped selling. And, and again, it could have been out of business to lose that much of your, your product is for any, any industry can be yeah. devastating. Uh, and I think I spent two or three hours, like almost nauseous and uh, you know, shaking. Cause I have a staff of employees that would have lost their jobs and all. And then I immediately was able, because of those experiences, like literally because of it, I thought to myself, you got over this and this and this in the past. You can deal with this one too, and you'll come out better. And, and we did. We came out actually a stronger company because of it. Uh, wow. So that, that's what I've learned is you can overcome just about any, everything. You have to be willing to shift your vision to what's now become realistic. You know, if you mm-hmm. lose the ability to walk and you are going to be a marathoner, well, maybe now your vision needs to, instead of being, you know, a, a marathoner, a, an Olympic wheelchair racer, you can shift your vision and still have a fabulous life and not be settling either. Uh, sometimes it can be become even a bigger challenge that's for that same example. It might, you might've been finding it so easy to run and now all of a sudden, this is a bigger challenge for me. So the reward when I win is going to be even better. Right. Or sharing that experience and knowledge with other people to see them grow. And I guess right. that could be another way of. And that's what I love doing today is I, I, you know, I spend a lot of time on podcasts like this and with men's groups, um, helping men understand that and, and people um, that, that don't let your fears paralyze you learn to turn them into a power to help you get ahead in life. Well, you must have had a lot of grief, even though it didn't hit home in your own family. 
you must have experienced that as well from all of these different instances that arose. I did. Um, I buried it a lot. They teach you, you know, in EMS and fire, you, uh, you're always a brave, strong person. Uh, and the, the grief is, it, it, it's, it's there. Real. It's real. It's real. And, and it's okay. Um, it's okay to have it, to share it. Uh, I have never worked on September 11th. I'm upset that this country has not turned it into a national uh, holiday. Um, uh, to me, it is, it's my one day to deal with that grief uh, every year. And like I said, the 10th anniversary, I went back. And then just recently, we went back for the 20th anniversary. Uh, and uh, yeah, those are, they're hard days, but I, I embrace them and I value that I have that part of me uh, because it's part of who I am and, and it kind of becomes the power to, to do uh, what I have. Like, you know, I call it my dark side. I think uh, Tim Grover uh, talks about that a lot. That that's my dark power. So if you look at it as a power, it, it makes it better. It makes it able to deal with. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I remember every time you watch like on history channel, something about Pearl Harbor and they bring on a 90 year old vet that was there, they're in tears. And it, it dawned on me, you know, a couple of years after nine 11, I said, every time something about nine 11 comes up, am I going to be in tears? And I hated that. I struggled with that. And now I just embrace it. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's a very deep, real memory and there's nothing wrong uh, with it. Uh, I, I will cry when I'm 90, when I envision those days or go back to ground zero. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, yeah, I'm fine with that. Why do you think that impact made such a difference in your job of, of you feeling your job? Like you could go after car accident and heart attacks. And we were talking about um, um, drug overdoses are rampant and, what makes 9-11 different? Uh, the enormity of it. And for me, it was the failure of it that I didn't save anybody. Uh, I can remember every single patient in 20 years of riding that was alive when I got to them and dead when I got them to the hospital. And I think every medic can um, because you feel like you failed. Whether you did or not, you know, generally it's, you didn't have any control over that. But that's your purpose. That's your, your why you're there. Uh, and 9-11 was, you know, I didn't just not miss one person. I missed thousands of people that, you know, retrospectively, you could say, well, there was nothing I could have done. You know, had I been there before the buildings come down, I probably couldn't have done anything. But that's why you're there, you know. And uh, and, and that, that feeling of failure is very hard to live with. Yes like you said, because it's nothing you could do about it, but your, your feeling of you're going to do it. You, you're going to save this person. You go in with that mindset and yeah. and when you don't, it, it hurts. Yeah. And again, for when it went on for a whole day of, and you thought any minute you're going to come up with a living person. Uh, that's just, that's a lot different than going to a car accident that only lasts, you know, you're on scene for half an hour uh, or, and most of the time, you know, if the person is going to live or die, 
uh, yeah. was already dead. Uh, it's a very different environment to be in. Or a heart attack that's already happened. And... Right, exactly. You just, it, it, the, there, there was no preparing for that. And our COVID problem now brings a whole other look at the whole scene, I think, as well. I think the problem with the COVID portion of it is we're not recognizing the the true medical emergency of it. Uh, we're not balancing it very well. We're overemphasizing the infectiousness of it versus the consequences of it. It's again, playing the fear of the worst case scenario is, is all we're doing versus what, what's the consequences. The mental health industry is struggling and you never hear comparisons of what's the suicide rate rate now compared to before COVID uh, or the drug overdose rate now, you know, they, they don't talk about that, but it, it is huge. And at some point, you got to balance your life out a little bit because you need that. That's part of life. It would be one thing if this was really a two week lockdown, but we're in a two year lockdown now and the human animal is just not designed for that. No, it comes a point in time when enough is enough. I hear lots of people saying I'm over this now. Exactly. And you're now more willing to take the risk uh, with it and, and, live and let live. If somebody else isn't, then that's their choice. If somebody else wants to take more risks than you, then that's their choice. And it's a very different world uh, that Mm -hmm. nobody, I don't think, should be dictating to us how we each handle it. Now that we have knowledge uh, of how deadly it is and can now make our own decision. When we didn't know, you know, when it was just over in China and just creeping into here and the scientists didn't know, that was a lot different. No, there was a lot of fear around that because it's fear of the unknown. Yeah. And, you know, the media, of course, plays to it. That gets them ratings. Uh, They're just doing their jobs in that. Uh, And the the politicians have to play worst case scenario. That's part of their job. But at some point we have to balance. We do. Yeah. Whatever that looks like. There's been a lot of people that have lost a family member to COVID. I remember at the beginning of last year seeing those big semi-trucks pull up in New York and um, there wasn't enough room for dead bodies. And that must be difficult for all of those people involved with that as well. Yeah, I knew some families that lost loved ones and they couldn't hold funerals in the beginning and, you know, there was no services and you know, again, we're not prepared for that. Uh, we, we just, we need to, to get a better grasp as a society, uh, but also as individuals and get back to standing up for what each one of us believe in, mm-hmm. but also allowing other people to stand up for what they believe in. What kind of, um, this was an amazing story of, of your journey, Alan. What do you think um, you would have for a final message for the listeners? Uh, well, it's all about fear. Uh, you know, my final message would be don't ever, ever let fear stop you from doing something. Not fear alone. Get knowledge. You know, take take time to assess the situation and then decide how to proceed. Uh, very rarely do you have to pr- 
decide if you should proceed. A lot of people just look at if and not how. Look, go the other way around. Look at how can you proceed and how can you come out better from it? How can you can overcome it and be a better person for be it? Be a better person, whatever, whatever the fear is. Again, whether it's a financial fear, job fear, relationship fear, health fear, uh, you know, plan it out, take control of it. I mean, your job fear was huge, actually. Uh, I mean, because you thought, how am I going to stay doing what I'm doing? And how do I convert to something else with my experiences that I've had? It was, but I didn't plan B it. There's, there's never a plan B. There's always plan A. And if plan A isn't working, I'll shift plan A. I'll, I'll, like I said, change the vision a little or change the path to get to that vision. If you have a plan B, you're probably going to go to it. You wouldn't otherwise have it there. Uh, so, yeah, yeah you, you just, you know, you have to make it work and you don't forget that you have to make it work. No, that's, that's beautiful. Thank you, Alan. That's, um, did you have any other messages you wanted to include with fear and your experiences? Um, no, I think just, just that live, live your life. And when I say live your life, I mean, be intentional, be relentless about every single thing, every 10 minutes a day, make sure what you're doing is getting you towards the vision of whatever it is that you're trying to achieve in your life. Well, that was really inspirational. Thank you, Alan. That was, that's great. Even with all of the things you've dealt with and overcome, that's really, truly amazing. And Alan is working on a book We're we're going to be, we'll have you come back on when you have your book done. How's that, Alan? I'd love to be back on. That'd be great. Thank you. That would be great to, to hear your story. And um, you have so many good words of fear because Fear in that lifestyle is, you know, the average person goes to work in an office or whatever and comes home in construction or, I mean, there's really no big fears, but what you guys do or have done on a daily basis, nurses and medical staff going into the hospitals and going to these emergency calls and dealing with this fear on a daily moment by moment basis. That's actually, can you, you know, that takes a certain person. It does. But if you ask most nurses and, or, or firefighters, or whatever to, you know, go do accounting every single day, I guarantee they're going to have the same level of fear as that accountant would trying to go into a hospital and work. Our, our fears are real and it doesn't matter what your, your occupation uh, or your risk of death is from your job. You know, that doesn't mean anybody else's fear is less scary to them. Uh, no. Less of a challenge for them to overcome. The, the process is always the same. Uh, it's the choices that separates one of us from the other. Yeah, that's true. And, and our growth that we're able to go right. to that next level and overcome that Absolutely. fear. Fear yeah. size, whatever that looks like. I can't imagine nine eleven fear. That's 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 way up there. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think anybody had the fear that day. It, it was another job. It was a bigger job, uh, but it it just and you know even after the buildings were down and you knew still had the risks, um, there was no more fear at 
those moments than there was on any other call. It was yeah. that you have a job to do. A normal day-to-day job to do. Yeah. Whatever that looks like. Yeah. It was just, you know, really big job that you couldn't figure out how to do. That's all. And we've all yeah. had, I mean, I work. Where today. do I start? Yeah. <laughs> Well, which I could imagine the condo collapse is when they got that call and they said the condo partially fell. I mean, I can't even imagine what, what, yeah. like what? Yeah. And what, what was that? Is that like 18 stories or something like that? Whatever yeah. stories, it's still more than one person can comprehend how to, how to address going forward. You know, they did have, of course, their incident command system in place and all, but it still is more than what you're doing on a regular basis yeah to, to take on yeah it's like a bomb hit it or something i guess it's, yeah it, it's an incredible incredible story so thank you alans thank you so very much for the time you've taken and the beautiful stories that well <laughs> beautiful in a way <laughs> they are if you learn the lessons from it yes. from it yes Absolutely. And that's what you're here to help us all with. And you're very inspirational. And thank you so very much for, for learning those lessons and sharing them with us. I really appreciate that. Um, so when you are thinking about someone special listening to the show today, um, remember to call them, pick up the phone. We still have phones, text them, FaceTime them, Zoom them, Skype them, whatever it is, call them today. Tell them how much you love and care about them because you don't know what tomorrow might bring, especially during this pandemic. We really, truly don't know what tomorrow will bring. So stay tuned for our podcast and our live streams each and every week. We have great conversations with some of the most interesting and accomplished people in the world today, just like great Alan here from New Jersey with all of his um, inspirational stories and, and his vision. Um, I think you'll be entertained informed, and hope that you've been inspired and motivated, motivated to start thinking about your, your unique stories and your unique plan that you'd like to put together for yourself because no one is Superman. I'm sure there could have been a Superman in that nine 11 building um, and that would have been wonderful, but there wasn't. So expect the unexpected. We are on all podcast platforms, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook. We have a Facebook community group also that you can um, subscribe to and follow and share your stories with others uh, in the group. Thank you for sharing your time with us as well. Um, Please like, share, and I always, I can't remember to not get out my hand. That's the button right down there, subscribe button, and click on that bell so you can be notified when you ring that bell. Um, <laughs> I always try to sing that 70s song, ring my bell, ring my bell, down below, right down there, somewhere. Um, and we always end with Carol Burnett because Carol Burnett, I know, Alan, you know who Carol Burnett is. Yeah. A beautiful, lovely lady who always made us laugh. And um, I'm so glad we had this time together just to have a laugh or sing a song. Seems we just get started. And before you know it, comes a time 
we have to say so long. So long, everybody. That was a wonderful, absolutely courageous story from Alan. Expect the unexpected and stay safe, everybody. Be kind. Thank you, Alan, for coming. Thank you. Bye for now. Stay safe. Be kind, everyone.